Welcome to the A Jesus Church podcast. We're a family seeking to become like Jesus, empowered by His presence to partner in God's creative work of restoring the world. We pray this episode encourages and equips you along the journey. Well, good morning, everybody. Grab a seat. We are going to open the scriptures together. Yeah. I have a very wet stage. For those of you who missed it, I tried to put the podium on the stage and succeeded in throwing that, the laptop, the Bible, spilling the water. It's, it got, it's a good sign. I think the next half an hour is going to be amazing. So uh, my name's Richard. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome. We're really glad you're here. That's a lot of energy from Bryce. Uh, (laughs) I'm really excited because this is some of my favourite part of the scriptures uh, to look at. Uh, But I also feel very vulnerable, you know, a little bit kind of violated today. You know, I was robbed viciously of an hour's sleep. And (laughs) does anyone else, you know, just want to lament with me for a moment? Thank you. Are there any morning people that were just like, they think today's awesome? Oh, I hate you people. (laughs) I think on a day like today, all of you people should come to the 9am and the rest of us should come to the 11. We should should divide up and just, it's going to be a very different day for some people today. (laughs) Well, we have been in the Becoming Like Jesus series. We've been going through Luke. It's been amazing. It's been great fun. God's been teaching us so much, challenging us with so many things. But we are going to pause because Easter is fast approaching. Doesn't that, doesn't that seem weird? It's like a month away. We're already thinking about Easter. And Easter is when we celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection. It's the climax, like the high point in the story of God. Um, it's sort of the, the pivot point when everything changes. Um, and it's a really big deal. And we want its impact on us to be a big deal. It, it ought to be. Like the cross and the empty tomb change everything and they they need to change us. And celebrating and how we celebrate is a deeply formational thing. Like we give our heart, we open ourselves to things when we celebrate them. But all all too often, Easter pops up, like it almost surprises you like, oh, it's Easter weekend and then it's gone in a flash. And I actually love in America how between Thanksgiving and Christmas, pop culture changes. Everything changes. It's like this time of year is for something different, okay? It seems to be for like mass consumerism, excess and things like that. If we could just tweak that, that'd be good. But at least there's something signaling this time of year is for something different. Now, around Easter, we don't actually have that. Our culture has not been affected by Christian tradition in the same way. But Christian tradition has, for thousands of years told the story of this time of year being different. And it's called Lent. The the time in the run-up to Easter that signals like this time of year is for something different. And Lent is to Easter a very similar thing to what Advent is for Christmas. It's this time of preparation, like preparing our hearts, leaning into the story, allowing it to shape us, getting under the skin of it, getting situated. So when we sort of crescendo into Easter, it's the kind of high point of a whole season of looking forward to it. And we're gonna, we're gonna do that. 
as a church, we're going to spend some time doing that. The most prevalent Lent tradition connects to Jesus' fast in the wilderness. You remember Jesus fasted for 40 days, overcame Satan's temptations before he began his public ministry. And that's why Lent usually is the 40 days before Good Friday. We're already past the 40-day mark, so it's okay. We're doing like our own version of Lent. It's all good. Um, If you want to learn a bit more about the tradition, about, about how these things connect, we did have a conversation about that this week, but we're not doing it this morning. We did that on the House of Learning podcast. Uh, we talked about the tradition, where it comes from. Uh, we, like the interesting question of like most people in our culture have the idea Lent, like you should give something up for Lent. So we talked about what's the difference between giving something up for Lent and actual biblical fasting and all sorts of other interesting things. So if you want to catch more of like the history, the tradition, then search for the House of Learning podcast wherever you get your podcasts or go to ajesuschurch.org forward slash connect, which is where you can always find like anything we're talking about this week. Um, but we are going to focus on something a little different than fasting. What we decided to do was to lean into what's the story that really gives Easter its significance. Because events get their significance from the difference they make to a story. Without the storyline, like, you don't really know how to respond to something that's happening. If you don't know what it's for, you don't know what difference it's making. I remember um, that N.T. Wright tells a story of traveling and being in the US during the Rugby World Cup. And he's in a hotel bar, you know, hanging out. And for some reason, you know, all the sports channels, they've got the Rugby World Cup and he's watching it. I can't remember what happens, but like someone scores a try in a particular game, a particular point. It's this amazing moment. He's over the moon. He's up. He's excited. He's knocked his drink over. You know, and he's trying to share that excitement with people around him. And of course, he's getting the response from you, know, like average American Joe. That's nice. Uh, would you just calm down and leave me alone? You know, <laughs> because it didn't mean anything to them. And even if he'd explained, like, well, this is the, this is the Rugby World Cup. This is you got to understand like what's happening with this team, and like they would still said like. That, that, that's nice, but they're not invested. They don't care about it, so it doesn't mean anything to them. And I can really relate to him. I tell you, the amount of times I'm really excited about like, what England's been doing in the cricket, like a couple of weeks ago, the way the test match finished, and I, I can't get anyone around here to break a sweat over it. <laughs> okay? Like, it, it's, a, it's a common experience, and it's really interesting with Easter, because I think most people have an idea that the, the good news, that the story of Easter is to do with sins being forgiven. Like, there's still enough sort of Christian heritage in our culture that most people know that. But it's about so much more than just that. So much more. The story, the story of God, the grand story that Easter is this climax point of is so rich, so multifaceted. And there's so much to appreciate and then appreciating those things, it will help us make more sense of why sins being forgiven is the big deal that it is as well. So we want to explore those things, press into those things, so that we can be affected by Easter more deeply, more richly. And it's really important that we get the story right. Um, this grand story of God is a countercultural story. It's counterformational. Because stories, the, the narratives we inhabit, they shape us. 
And this world is constantly spinning us different narratives about what matters, what's valuable, why things are the way they ought to be, how things ought to be. And, and often our sense of narrative, like personally, is shaped by what's most immediate to us. But your story is not your circumstances. We often live in that, but it's not true. Only God's story is 100% real, trustworthy, true. And the story we live in will determine the story we live out. The reality we inhabit, it's gonna shape how we think, act, speak, everything that flows out from us. And if we don't escape the narrative of this world and our circumstances, then that's exactly what our life will reflect. Only when we situate ourselves in God's story will we be able to become like Jesus and experience the thriving kingdom life that he's got on offer for us. So, that's Lent. Welcome to Lent. We're here. You've arrived. The invitation there is to allow yourself to be reshaped again by God's story, to explore it, to receive what he says is true of himself, of you, of this world, to reshape your reality, your expectations. And we're going to do it in four parts, okay? Four movements, creation, fall, redemption, and renewal. That's right, the whole of this in four sections. It's going to be amazing, okay? I'm not going to talk like really fast like the end of a medical advert, you know? We're not going to do that for four weeks and get through it. We're going to go big picture, because it's kind of like doing a jigsaw. You've got to get like the corners and the edge pieces to, to help frame what's going on. And so that's what we're going to do. And this week is part one, creation. So grab a Bible, turn to Genesis 1 right at the beginning. If you don't have a Bible, wave your hand in the air, someone will hand you one. If you don't own a Bible, take it home with you and read it. We'd love you to have a Bible. And uh, let's pray before we read God's word and see what he's got to show us. <coughs> Jesus, <coughs> Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that you want us to know your story. You want us to know reality. So much so, not only did you give us your word, but you gave us your spirit. And Jesus, you sent the spirit. You said his job, one of his jobs, is gonna to be to reveal truth. So we invite you, send your Holy Spirit, Father, to reveal truth to us. Help us catch what you want to show us today. Help us put down anything we need to put down that's not your story, that's not your narrative, that's not true. And to be able to receive and be shaped by the things that you tell us. Amen. Okay, so we're going to read the first few verses and we're going to travel through this first chapter in a bit to get the first part of the story. So let's read together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And then God did something else. And God saw that it was good. And then some other stuff happened. And God saw that it was good. And then a bit more happened. And God saw that it was good. And then God finally did the last of it. And God saw all that he had made and it was very good. 
And I missed out a few and God saw that it's good. there's actually seven of them in there, which is a significant mum, number because it means it's sort of completely good. Uh, but this recurring theme is the first thing I want to emphasize out of this story. Right at the beginning, one of the first things that's emphasized to us is that God is good and God does good things. Like if you don't get anything else from this morning, if you're like, man, I lost an hour's sleep, I'm just falling asleep, wake up right now, catch this, write this down, and then you can carry on snoozing, okay? I mean, don't, but you know, it, it won't be as bad if you fall asleep after this. God is good, it's his nature. It's his nature, he is thoroughly good, and everything he does is good. He brings about goodness, that's who God is. So let's see how he does it. So before God acts, creation is this Hebrew phrase, tohu vavohu, okay? It's formless, it's empty, it's wild and waste, it's disordered and uninhabited. There's no order in the world, no purpose. It's a picture of chaos and wildness and it gets associated with darkness. It's a scene that's supposed to feel sort of threatening unsafe, it's not good. And there's also no life in the world. It's empty, no one's inhabiting it. It's a world that's unseen and unused, like no potential is being realized. It's a kind of tragic picture. But the Spirit of God, God's Ruach, God's breath, if you remember from the summer, we looked at the Holy Spirit. God's Ruach is poised over the waters sort of poised for action. So the sense of anticipation builds. God's gonna do something about the darkness, about the unsafe, about the threatening, about the, the sort of absence of goodness. And he's gonna act. He's gonna get his own hands dirty, pushing against the darkness to create goodness, which is part of God's nature again. This is what God keeps doing. So the foundation is here in Genesis and it's gonna play out through the rest of the scriptures. God is present where his power is needed to bring about goodness. He fights against darkness to bring light. He redeems what's waste and wild to bring order and purpose and life. And we're not gonna read the details, but this is what God does next. This is all the dot, dot, dots that I skipped out. God creates order by dividing creation into well-ordered parts and each with its own purpose. So we have light and darkness. We have the water separated and ordered. We have dry land organized and filled with plants. And these three realms of sort of ancient thought that get used actually to represent what's not good at the beginning, the wild land, the darkness and the threatening waters all become well-ordered versions of themselves, now given purpose. And there's something special about the purpose. Their purpose is not just to be well-ordered, okay? There's a bit of me that would love that. It's like, you know, when all the shoes are in pairs, lined up, facing the same way by the front door, I feel very happy. It doesn't happen very often, I feel very happy. But God's not just doing that, okay? He's ordering the universe in order that life can thrive not just exist, but thrive and be safe. God has a plan, he has a design. Part of the goodness of God's activities is that he is providing what is needed for life. 
It's a picture of a caring creator, a father creating and caring that the things he's made will have a habitat suitable for life. And life is what follows. Next three days, God fills up each of these three realms with inhabitants for each realm. There's the sun, moon and stars in the sky and the birds in the air, fish in the sea. And then the land gets populated by animals and then last of all, humans. And God's not just filling up the space. You know, he's not just like, ah, you know, the page is a little blank over here. We could sprinkle some creatures over that bit, you know, just to make sure we haven't, you know, got anything that's wasted. The, these creatures that are put in, they also are put there with a purpose. All of the creatures get commissioned to be fruitful and multiply. God's creating ecosystems that can grow and spread the goodness out. God creates the kind of goodness that will advance that will spread. That's something really unique about God. He doesn't just create goodness. He creates goodness bombs that go off, that spread more goodness. I, I know a bomb's a bit of a weird image. You have to think the good version of a bomb. I don't know what that would be, but this is it. And then right at the end, read with me in verse 29. Okay? Then God said, I will give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food and to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. Keyword here, give. God gives. He gives food for his creatures. He knows they have needs and he does something about it. Again, it's revealing this caring provider nature of God that where he sees a need, he wants to care for people with those needs and wants to do something about it. But there's another interesting little detail in here. Notice that the creatures that God has made have the breath of life in them. The creatures have a ruck of their own. They have a breath. It's really interesting. It's distinctive of these creatures. God has reflected something of himself. One of the first things we learn about God is that part of God's expression of himself is this ruach and it's reflected in the creatures he's made. Right from the beginning, we're getting the sense that God has designed a creation to connect himself to. Okay? Not to be separate from, but connect himself to. And that idea comes right into the foreground as we read about what God did in creating humans. So let's read those verses. Verse 26. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. You see, there's something special about humans. The narrative builds to this point and God actually portrays humans as the climax of creation. They're placed in creation and when that happens, it's not just good, at that point, it's very good. 
It's as if we've reached a point where the design's complete, like everything that needs to be there has now been put there. And humans, they get created in the image and likeness of God. Likeness emphasizes this idea that there's a connection between God and humans. God created a likeness in us because above all the other creatures, we are designed to relate to God. There's something of God and something of us that that overlaps to create the possibility of connection. And humans are made in God's image. This is not just about what they look like, okay? There's a sort of ancient concept in, in play here. The idea of an image bearer would have been a common idea, but not so much for us, so we've got to explain. See, temples contained an image of the God that the temple was for. A little statue, a little idol. Could be little, could be big. It just depends on how big the God is and how big the temple is. But the, the point of the idol, the point of the image, was to represent what that God was like and to sort of declare over that space, this belongs to this God. What he says goes here. This is for him. He's in charge. Kings would do the same thing. Okay? You couldn't just look up where you were on Google Maps. Okay? So if a king wanted you to know, like, hey, you're in my realm, he would set up images of himself around his kingdom, often surrounded by tablets that explained the laws, the rules, the values of that kingdom. And it was a way for a king to show, like, this is my kingdom. This is mine. Okay, I'm in charge of this place. Like, here's where the authority lies here. So how is God, who's powerfully created this good creation and cares for it and provides for it, how is he going to reveal himself more in it? How is he going to connect with it? How is he going to influence it? By humans. By image bearers. He actually says, like, the, the way I'm going to do that is you. Is you humans. What an amazingly high calling. Like that, that elevates humans amazingly that God in his, his own divine authority would say, I'm actually going you're gonna, to, you're gonna exercise this. It's why creating idols was such a big deal, such a no-no throughout the Bible. Okay? And, and partly we think of idols as like, yeah, don't go worship like the God of, I don't know, fast cars or, you know, whatever our modern things are. Um, But it's also like coming out of Egypt, you don't need no golden calf to represent God to you. It's wrong, partly because God's just not like a golden calf. That would be like a misrepresentation. But the big deal is you've already got a representation. When you think you need to look to something else to represent God to you, you've missed the point of what I made you for. You're missing part of your purpose, your design, your identity. So it's really important. And notice the language that is in the commission God gives humans. They are to fill the earth. God wants to use humans to spread the goodness throughout all the land, to make God known, to actualize his goodness. Humans are commissioned to bring more life and to continue to fill what was empty. And they're to subdue the land. God commissions humans to be order bringers, to subdue the wild, the chaos, to bring it under rule so that it allows life to thrive. And they are to rule, okay? Rule isn't just who gets to be in charge. It's the kind of rule that God's already exercised, that you care for creation. And this 
elevates so much of human endeavor. It's not just being helpful for us. You know, I, I think there's a narrative spun over so much of what we do, which is just because humans need to do it to survive, or we do it because we're inquisitive. Well, we do want to survive, and we are inquisitive, but deep down, we were designed for lots of these things, right? Like being fruitful, multiplying, filling, that goes beyond just making babies, okay? It, like all aspects of bringing God's life, of beauty into fruition throughout creation are involved in that, and the rest of scripture makes it clear. Subduing, that the first model for subduing was tending a garden, but it goes so much further than that. It, you know, it covers everything from creating buildings to inventing medical technology. And that ruling, that caring, that overseeing, I mean, that calls to mind everything from caring for our environment through to like nursing and social care and things like that. You know, there's so many things get wrapped up in this commission. Yeah, you know, I wonder out of all of us in this room, what things we do, we actually have going on in our life and we might not be sure exactly why they're valuable or why they matter, but actually they're a part of this. I mean, that will change your Monday morning, okay? I mean, that sort of purpose behind some of the things you do. And these things, the filling, the subduing, the ruling, these are reflections of God's own activity. Those were the things God just did before creating humans, right? He brought order, he subdued. He filled with inhabitants and, and he ruled and cared. So it's as if you know, God could have summed up the whole commission by saying to humans, hey, the good stuff I just did, do the same. Actually, join me. You're included. Do it with me. Because that's the similarity again, the likeness, the image bearing, and the similarity of activity it calls right into the foreground that what God is designing here is partnership. And, and it's a partnership that's not just about work, it's not just about the output, it's about relationship. The divine us that's doing the creating, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all present, together working to create, it's as if that good community is reaching out to humans, enveloping them and saying, you get to be a part of this too. You get to participate, you get to join in. It's why later on we see God walking in the garden with Adam and Eve, talking with them. Friendship, relationship, interaction. But it's not just that, it's, there's this other aspect of relationship in here and it gets emphasized in chapter two. That humans were designed not just for a divine relationship, but relationship with each other as well. God notes that the male human by himself is not good. And it should really slap us in the face as we read along, because we got like, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's not good, what? Wait a second, like, <laughs> that really breaks the pattern. So God actually really wants to emphasize, okay, that being solo is not, it's not better. I, I, this is mind boggling to me, that we have a culture that's so rife with the idea that when you're self-sufficient, when you don't need to rely on others, when you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and get your own junk done by yourself, that's when you're the best version of you. No, that's exactly the thing, that's exactly the mindset that God says, that's not good. And he calls us to something different. And so God takes the male and he adds 
the counterpart, the female counterpart. And then at that point, he says, okay, now the image bearing's complete. Now we're ready to go. Now the purpose can move forward. And the rest of the Bible keeps unpacking this idea because this is just the beginning of it. We're created for community with God and community with other people. And that community is designed not just to be male and female, but multi-generational, multi-ethnic, Jew, Gentile, slave, free. In fact, Paul, when he talks about the people of God being a body, he uses that image of like, yeah, there's like loads of different parts in different places with different skills, with different gifts, doing different things, fulfilling different roles, and they can't work without each other. Like the idea of diversity and unity, so rich in this story. So this chapter is saying some amazing things about our identity, about who God says humans are. He elevates us above all the rest of creation with a unique dignity. We've been given amazing value by God. You are amazingly valuable, designed as valuable. You're not just valuable for what you perform, for what you produce. That's the story of our culture, of our world. It says if you want to accrue value, if you want to be valuable, then show me what you can do. God begins by saying, I made you valuable. You are valuable because you are an image bearer. You reflect my likeness, my power, my good creativity. And God calls humans into this unique purpose. We're not just designed to enjoy goodness. Like lots of narratives think the purpose of humanity is happiness, to enjoy goodness. But it's so much more than that. Enjoying goodness, good thing. Okay, that's a good thing. But we are designed to spread goodness and to spread goodness in the face of darkness, to actually subdue the darkness and bring light, to join with God in doing it. Humans are for something. This is so different. Again, another narrative on our world of like people just feeling like, yeah, I, I struggle to find my place in this oppressive world. I don't know what I'm for. I don't know why I belong. Like God's story begins with those big questions answered and answered with amazing answers. And then we come to the last day. This goes into chapter two, verse two. By the seventh day, God had finished all the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating he had done. This is a, a picture of creation completed. Everything that needs to, to be established has been. It, it's as if God's building a kit car. And like the suspension's in, the gearbox is it, like the wiring's done. Like everything's together, it's complete, and God gets in the driving seat and says, let's go. And humans, jump in. Like you're a part of this. It's the Hebrew word for rest here is nuach, not ruach. Ruach is breath or spirit. So it's going to get confusing, especially because most of the time, the, when God nuaks, it's his ruach that nuaks. So you've really got to pay attention, okay? Um, but this idea, this idea of rest is actually a biblical theological theme throughout the scriptures. And anytime God nuaks or humans nuak, they always do it in a place that is stable and secure and safe. And it means to take up residence in a space like that, to go and inhabit a space like that. 
And most often, the space that that word is used of is a temple, that God moves in and inhabits that place of safety, of provision, of care. And so the completed creation is this picture, actually, of a temple, where now God can be present with his creatures and active, interacting with his partners, where he can express himself with his creation. Creation isn't a place that God sets going and then withdraws from. It's a place God inhabits to be encountered. Part of his design involves trying to create the possibility of connection. You know, sometimes we use that phrase like God is totally transcendent. He's totally other. Okay? And, and I get what we mean. We mean God's so much bigger, I'll never wrap my head around it. God's love is so amazing, I'll never fully appreciate it. God's got like, so much care in him, I'll never understand how much he cares. But we shouldn't say he's totally transcendent because he's not. He's actually designed his creation that he would not be transcendent, that he would interact the part of what's true of his nature and part of what's true of creation would line up so that they can join, so that they can partner, so that they can interact with each other. What a beautiful picture that is. And, and here's the thing about that seventh day. It's the only day that doesn't have an ending. Every other day is like, and morning and evening, that was done, that's accomplished, what's next, let's move on. God inhabiting, like getting in the car, putting it in gear and saying, let's go, is the one day that doesn't have an ending. It continues. We're still in it. We're still in that reality. That's, that's the sort of chapter of the story that we're still in, is God wanting to move forward with us. What, a, what an amazing picture. I, I want to pull together some of the key ideas here to distill them down, because I want you to be able to carry them with you this week. So what does God say about himself? It's just like, this is our, I should do like quick fire answers and throw candy bars out to people to get it right. But I didn't bring any candy bars, so next time. God is a powerful creator. He's the source of purpose and life. And he's good. He's thoroughly 100% good and he does good things. He has a design for life and for goodness to thrive. God's a caring provider towards his creation. And God inhabits that creation and is active in that creation. And what does God say about humans? You are valuable. You are made in the likeness of God. You are made to connect with God. And you're an image bearer. You are designed with a purpose of partnering with God, of joining up with God in his work. You're designed to create goodness and beauty in the world. And you are made for community. For community with God and community with each other. What an amazing, I mean, just paradigm-altering truths that God says this is reality. Now, as we finish, I want to draw some lines forward to Easter as well. Because next week, we're going to learn that, yeah, the design, it hits an obstacle. There's a talking serpent, there's fruit, it all goes pear-shaped, okay? It's going to be okay, though, because there's, like, there's, there's more to the story than just that. But here's the thing. Easter is not just what fixes the plan and what overcomes that obstacle that we kind of know is the elephant in the room. Easter is actually the most beautiful, wonderful revelation of this story, of God's design. 
the cross is where God most perfectly displays his design, his heart for himself and for humanity. It's the most perfect representation of this plan in action. See, God continues to be the same God. God pursues his connection with humans, so much so that God actually becomes a human being in Christ Jesus to inhabit this world, to come in the likeness of sinful flesh, to connect with us. God provides what's needed for creation to thrive. It's not thriving. It needs a solution to sin and God provides it. It needs a new life, it needs a new way and God rises so that he can give resurrection life away. And God continues to be good, so good, that even when his creatures are treating him like an enemy, even when they're crucifying him, he is good and he forgives them and loves them. And God's design for humans has not gone away, it's not been rescinded. Jesus was the perfect likeness of God the perfect image, restoring what was broken in the image so that he can then restore the image in us as we get conformed to his image, as we become like Jesus. Colossians puts it this way. The son, Jesus, is the image. That word's got like extra twist on it, right? He's the image bearer of the invisible God. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, all of it. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. And Jesus is the perfect partner, remolding human partnership with the Father, filled with the Spirit as a human being, fully reliant on God, making it possible for us to then step into and experience the same, remaking that possibility. Colossians 1 Colossians is my favorite on this stuff. Paul is like dropping Genesis bombs left, right, and center. It picks up the Genesis language and says that Jesus, by giving us the spirit, is restoring us to being fruitful and multiplying in making God known to us so that God can work through us. It actually gives this twist to what being fruitful and multiplying looks like and says what Jesus is doing by giving his spirit and his church is a fulfillment of Genesis 1. And Jesus is on a mission from the Father to reveal the perfect divine community and envelop us into it. I'm not making it up. Jesus prayed it. John 17, when Jesus is praying for all the disciples, all the people who believe in him, right down through the ages to us. And he says, he wants all of them. He says, may all of them be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you've sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. There's a lot of words in that verse, and if it's kind of a bit of a mishmash, the picture you should have is like a Venn diagram, like God, Jesus, and us, and it all overlaps. That's God's heart, still God's heart. So what should you do with this story this week? What's the call? Well, you need to let your heart and your mind receive it. You need to allow it to permeate your thoughts, to carry it with you so it can reshape your perspective. You need to carry it with you in the forefront of your mind so as you keep bumping into those other stories, 
you can start to say, that's not true. That's not real. To start to actually push back on that. And look, like observe your life, your environment, the things going on around you, and look to see where God and his story is reflected in who you are and what you do. And it's okay to notice the tensions. We're not living in just this bit of the story, so you'll see a bunch of other stuff reflected too. That's all right, that's Tim's job. Next week, he'll explain it all. Okay, and there'll be a bit more to carry with us. But here's the thing, Lent gives us this opportunity to lock eyes on the garden reality that's here. This perfect, ultimate design because the cross and the resurrection show it to us perfectly and open the way for us to go towards it. And the door is open, friends. And for some of you, it's not just a matter of carrying it with you this week. Like you need to let it impact you right now, right here, in this God-inhabited time and space. Maybe God's shown you something new. Maybe there's a bit of this story where you're like, I just, I hadn't realized that. But you know what? I'm, I've got a hunch that for lots of us, it's actually because we experience a battle to believe that this is the real account of God and what he says about who he is and what he says about who we are. I think loads of us, we wrestle against lies like you're not valuable, you're not included, you're not called, you're not worthy, you're not loved. So we keep living out the story of feeling like we need to do more to be more. And God actually wants to set us free from those lies. There is, that, that's the beautiful thing about Jesus. He not only offers us so much richness in his story, but stepping into it is a free gift that creates so much freedom from so much harm and pain and angst. So you're invited this morning to come forward, to actually like lay those lies down, to just confess them to Jesus and say, I don't want this. This is not true. I want to receive, I want to be affected by your story and have someone pray that over you and pray that God blesses you. So let's stand to our feet. Let's pray together as we begin stepping into that response. Jesus, thank you so much that this is the story. We are so glad that your story is so good, that you are a good God. And, and that you speak such amazing things over us. It'd be so easy to live in a story where we're minions and we better do what we're told. That's, that's not reality. We're amazed by what you say about us, the purpose you give us, the value you give us. And Jesus, we confess that we've got a head and a heart full of so many other narratives. This world is constantly trying to spin us the idea that this is not a God-inhabited world. It's constantly tempting us to see things that way. Jesus, we need your presence and we need your power to help us make this story, your story, the real story, our reality. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to partner with us through giving, visit us at ajesuschurch.org.